Innovate UK KTN. Connecting for positive change. Hello and welcome to episode three of the UK KTN Geo for Earth podcast. I'm Dallas Campbell. I'm a science and technology television presenter. And I'm Susie Imber, space physicist. And we'll be with you throughout this series, talking to some of the finest minds grappling with solutions to climate change. In this episode, we're going to be talking to Federica Bieta, who is the Managing Director of the Coalition for Rainforest Nations. And also Josh Gilbert, the founder and CEO of SOST Global. The name of this episode is Space for Finance, and we'll be chatting about the role of finance in supporting the effort towards net zero and reducing carbon emissions. Yes, indeed. Hope you enjoy the series. Hope it gives you lots of food for thought. Enjoy this episode. I guess our listeners probably aren't as familiar with you as we are, so maybe you'd like to uh, introduce yourselves, maybe a little bit about you and, and what you do. Federica, why don't you start? Sure. Uh, so Federica, Managing Director, Coalition for Rainforest Nations. Um, my background uh, is uh, was really in uh, investment banking, corporate banking in New York, but then I decided I wanted to do something for the environment, not good uh, as a veterinarian, not good for blood. Uh, so I said, okay, I go save the habitat of all the animals in the rainforest. And so maybe I can do more impact that, uh, you know, if uh, I'm a vet. And I thought it was gonna take a couple of years of break from uh, uh, banking. And that was uh, 16, 17 years ago. That's how long, uh, you know, it took to create a mechanism uh, of Red Plus, which I'm gonna talk to you about more also, what does it mean Red Plus? I like the fact you have small goals. It's like, I'm going to leave f- banking and just save all the animals <laughs> and the rainforests of planet Earth. I have small ambitions. Well, thank you. Brilliant. Josh, tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, what you're excited about, etc. Well, who I am is a very deep and profound question. That is that a profound We could go down the rabbit hole on, but... Um, uh, I'm, I'm also uh, the CEO, uh, but at SUS Global, not the managing director. Uh, my, my background really was uh, as a very bad statistician and economist uh, at university, got thrown out of stats a few times, but came back for more and eventually passed. Um, got into kind of international development and clean tech, uh, became obsessed with, uh, you know, geospatial analytics, fundamentally as a fan, really, as like a fanboy, kind of saying, look, this type of technology is really cool. It can change the world. Um, look at all of these customers that I work with that could do it, but I was very non-technical. Um, I met my co-founder, Gopal, who is very technical. He was the um, head of analytics at Planet Labs, which you know operates a huge, uh, the largest commercial satellite um, system ever. Um, and I said to him, hey, I've got a great idea that you should quit your job and come join me to take geospatial data and learn how to... Um, analyze climate change, look at climate related risks, uh, look at climate related opportunities, um, some of them within finance. So it's a long way of ending up at SUS Global, um, where now we take those very technologies, use satellite data, uh, run validation on global climate models and provide useful climate intelligence to our customers. Oh, that's fantastic. Gosh, we have so much to unpack in this episode. Great stuff. (laughs) Just very quick, who are your customers, Josh? Just just, what kind of people use SUS Global? It really ranges. So we're not experts in finance, right? We have financial customers, but we I'm sure, uh, Frederica, if we had a conversation about some of the models that you used uh, back in your banking days, my eyes would, would kind of glaze over and I'd be very confused. 
but it's a good thing, right? So we provide the kind of the data integrations for climate data. It means we can serve finance. So we have customers in finance, um, data providers themselves. So, you know, like these large kind of firms that sell the data that then asset managers or bankers kind of analyze. Um, working with large corporates, help them understand like what's the risk of their factory catching on fire or flooding, um, bad stuff happening. Uh, I've got a couple of projects with some NGOs as well. Um, so yeah, a real a real broad range. We're trying to build the foundational climate data layer with the idea that then other smart people do kind of even smarter things with it in their own areas. Great. So uh, I was just going to start with Federico actually, um, because you were obviously at COP26 and we were wondering whether you were satisfied with the outcome. Like, what's the next step now? Uh, were you happy with what came out of COP26? What a, a deep question, so much to say. Uh, I mean, definitely COP26 was a step forward. Um, uh, you know, major emitters agreed to uh, face down uh, coal. Um, there was also the, the book on Article 6, the rule books, and in particular Article 6 that was completed. Uh, so it was definitely a step forward. Um, there was also a major announcement uh, at the beginning of the COP on forest that, of course, we deeply care. Um, uh, you know, uh, Boris Johnson and a few others with few companies uh, talking about the importance of forest uh, and uh, also committing about 19 uh, billions um, uh, for that. So very positive. Can you just tell us what Article 6 is? Sorry, I, I th maybe I missed that. But what was the Article 6 that you talked about? Article 6 uh, is, gonna, is one of the articles of the Paris Agreement that was uncompleted and it was the missing element that needed to be finished uh, now for four years. And finally, COP26 was uh, D-Day. Um, it's not completely finished, meaning there are some rules that need to be finalized, uh, but the overall architecture is there. And basically, it's going to uh, tell how... Uh, companies uh, or uh, uh, other governments can uh, uh, help and exchange uh, uh, credits among themselves uh, to make sure that the reductions uh, are achieved to achieve the 1.5 global goal. Um, and so it's going to give us the accounting or how it needs to be accounting for, and you know, that also for Josh, uh, how, uh, you know, everything needs to be balanced out uh, at the end of the day. Um, so that's good. The good part. Uh, uh, is that enough? I mean, clearly it's not enough. I mean, we saw the latest IPCC report came out last week. We really need to pick uh, the emission by 2025. By 2025, uh, and we need to decrease of 43% uh, on the global emission by 2030. So we're talking about uh, big numbers. Uh, um, is the NDC that we have now, they're going to get us there? No. And that's why countries are already submitting new national determined contributions. Uh, uh, that's what NDC stands for, is their commitment, what they're going to do to reduce the emissions. Uh, um, and so, uh, step forward, not enough. But the other element very dear for us, uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, forest uh, and also adaptation were really left uh, out uh, of the big uh, deal of the Glasgow Pack. Uh, while there was a commitment outside the UNFCC of, uh, you know, the relevant forest and, uh, and providing 19 billion, this is another probably commitments that we had in the past. We had it in uh, Copenhagen, we had it after 
after you know at the UN General Assembly etc um, the analysis really that we need about 45 billion to 460 billion per year uh, to stop the rate of deforestations and then focus on the removal side and building back so clearly 19 billion are awfully uh, inadequate and we're talking sorry 45 mil billions uh, to 400 billions uh, per year uh, because we need to understand we're asking rainforest countries to develop differently in a sustainable way and so they need to switch how they're creating their GDP from logging uh, from maybe agriculture a big scale in a different way preserving the forest and so that's why we're talking about big numbers and big finance uh, last but not least the other things that was really left behind uh, um, during COP26 is really adaptation very important for uh, rainforest country but for African country for small uh, island states at the moment uh, adaptation is funded by developing countries to uh, one article 6.4 when there is exchange of those credits between countries 5% of this needs to be cut off and donated to adaptation uh, you understand that uh, you know it's going to be really a minimum amount uh, really for the needs that adaptation is going to have so we are really looking forward uh, to Egypt to COP26 27 uh, to bring back uh, balance and inclusivities Fantastic. I mean, you mentioned 19 billion and the fact that that's not going to be enough. Um, but it, it seems that most of the sort of vulnerable nations are struggling to, to access funds um, more broadly for this. Can you tell us a little bit about how the Coalition of Rainforest Nations helps um, people to secure the finance they need? Absolutely. Uh, so Clemens Justice uh, is about direct access. And so that's what the coalition is really focusing on, to make sure that rainforest countries can have a direct access uh, to finance. Um, there is uh, all uh, um, voluntary standards that have been created outside uh, the UNFCCC, uh, not using the same rules, uh, that uh, um, have uh, intermediaries where there are project developers uh, that basically get the funding and only a minimum part of 20, 30% really goes to the community and goes to the countries where actually the reduction are happening. We need to change that. Otherwise, we would never scale and we would never able to achieve the, you know, the 1.5 degrees. And so that's what we did with the Red Plus under the UNFCC. Red Plus, I promise I was gonna spell it out. And I'm gonna do it here. Reduction from emission, from deforestation and degradation and the sustainable forest of management and enhancement of carbon stocks and conservation. So in simple words is there is stopping the deforestation and the increasing of the carbon stock the reforestation so that's what we are after and so it's kind of a striptease goes down we stop deforestation and we go up with the forest and so red plus all of that we have article 5 um, is part of the paris agreement is the only sector that can be implemented at the moment under the paris agreement and can do a neat more uh, that is uh, uh, the exchange that we were talking about in uh, uh, 6.2 uh, and the article that been uh, defined um, what are the issues though that um, the issue that we took a long time to finalize this article. In the meantime, 
time this forest project uh, uh, they started at the moment though about only under 50 million of those uh, um, credits have been retired and paid but the issue that is paid to whom uh, project developers what, what happened to the transparency of this money who's getting the money how much goes to the countries how much goes through the community that that we have no idea all, all of that in the other side on the red plus under the UNFCC we, that we created, we have nine gigatons of carbon reduction. So under 50 million on the voluntary, nine gigatons of carbon reduction have been real, achieved and verified independently by the UNFCCC. And they are in the UNFCC Info Hub. What is the problem? That only 4% of this reduction has been, pay, have been paid for. And so what we're trying to do at the CFRN and the coalition is changing that, having this direct access for these nine gigatons of reductions that have been, and more they're gonna come at scale and they're gonna help us to achieve the 1.5 reduction. How are we doing that? Uh, we create the Red Dot Plus, is simply taking the credits produced under Article 5 and verified by the UNFCCC and put in a platform where companies, uh, brokers, uh, banks, can, individuals can buy directly. And you know what? Transparently, 100% of the proceed of this funding goes through the country and goes to the community. And so really we're gonna change this paradigm. We will see that when the funding actually goes where it needs to go, we're gonna have more reductions, we're gonna have more forest uh, and really needs to, uh, everything is going to move forward. Last but not least point that I would like to say what we're working on as well is uh, very important that the price that is offered to countries is not the $5 uh, that, uh, you know, the Green Climate Fund and the World Bank were offering as a starting point. That can be the base floor, uh, but really we need to move forward. We are facing, we need to pay at least uh, uh, as much to overcome the opportunity cost that the countries are facing. What is the opportunity cost? Is uh, logging a scale? Is agriculture a scale? So all those revenue allow the countries to have a big uh, injection in their GDP. They can go to 20 to 30% of the annual revenue. You understand if we pay $5, uh, even uh, you know, for uh, 10 millions of uh, credits, for example, the Papua New Guinea achieved, I'm getting them an example from 2014 and 15, if we pay $5, it's going to be 0 0.03 of their GDP. It's not going to help. But if actually we pay $40, uh, like we see, for example, the UETS, the price per tons of carbon now is between 70 to 80 euros. Uh, and uh, we see the, the UK came up uh, uh, with their uh, before COP uh, with their report that they say, hey, really, the price per carbon we see needs to be on 300 pounds, uh, you know, by 2030. And so if the price really start getting up, uh, the, the rainforest country will be able to uh, uh, replace, uh, you know, unsustainable development with sustainable development, preserving the forest through Red Plus. So direct finance will be very important. Okay, so help me out here then. I, yeah, I, I, that I, I'm was, a bit lost. <laughs> that, no, I think that was a really good description, but I'm just going to try and summarize it. I'm going to try and summarize it and you can tell me if I'm wrong. We need to give these countries loads of money to help them to adapt and and to reduce the the destruction of the rainforest, for example. 
the money that the governments have offered is not enough and isn't getting to the people that need it. And you guys are trying to sort out a credit system, which is like an independent system where other people can buy credits to support this um, this shift that has to happen in these developing countries. Is that does that sound reasonable? Yeah. Yeah. Can I ask a really stupid question? I just can I I just want to sort of back up a little bit. Why is finance important for tackling climate change? Yeah. Um, so finance. Uh, a rainforest country, they don't cut trees because they like it. They cut it because they have a revenue stream coming from that. They don't want to stay poor. They want to have food. They want to send their kids to school, to education. They need medicines. And so they need the finance. And so at the moment, the incentives are cutting the forest, uh, planting palm oil, ranching. And so we need to replace these uh, unsustainable incentives with something positive. Got it, got it, got it. And and just the work that you do over the last few years, have you has that shift happened? Have you created the financial incentives in order for people to say actually trees are, are more valuable standing up than lying down, being chopped up? I think that's the last piece of that we are uh, really uh, working really hard now. It took uh, unfortunately about twelve years to just create a mechanism. And now we have the mechanism. Every, everyone was telling us, it's impossible. You're never going to have rainforest country, developing country to reduce their emissions because they are corrupt and everything. Well, fast forward, the UN independently verified nine gigatons. So the mechanism there is working. What is the missing part? We need to give them money. Right now, only 4% of this work paid for and so we need to change that and that's what we're working to create this direct access and josh let me throw that question to you as well so so finally you, you know you look at you look at data you look at information where does finance fit into it and, and how does how does the, the way that we think about finance how is that going to help us become more sustainable more green it's a good question i think there's two parts to it um, obviously finance is kind of one of the core industries that makes the world go around it kind of obviously deploys capital moves capital around uh, you know, provides capital but i think the second part of it is more interesting where finance has often had a very narrow view of like what's in a model or what's in like the relevant factors to assess value and it ties in with everything Federica said right it's like um how do you how do you bring in factors that maybe aren't in the traditional kind of financial analysis. Uh, and I think something like environment, many of the things that we were looking at at COP26, many of the things that both of us are working on, it's like these do have really tangible uh, impacts on like financial value, as well as like, you know, capital in other senses of the word, right? Like forest, forest capital or social capital or any of those other sources, right? So I think Finance makes the world go round. Uh, it is continually kind of just this kind of nexus of important and powerful people doing important and powerful stuff. But like breaking down, breaking down those barriers around it and really bringing in kind of things that haven't traditionally been in the domain of finance is ultimately going to be the thing that helps us move away from kind of just focusing on uh, like economic growth uh, in and of itself and actually recognizing that many alternative factors can come in and a provide value but also b maybe do things like make sure 
the planet doesn't go up in flames as well because you won't have many places to spend all that money if there's nothing left. Does the, I mean, does the, our finances, is the world of finance, I think a lot of people don't really, you know, see it or don't sort of conceive it as part of the solution to climate change. Do you think, is the world of finance on board with it all, I suppose? Are they, are they prepared to change? Is there, are you seeing the sort of, the, the, the shift? Uh, yeah, I mean, again, there's a duality, right? On the one hand, a lot of these financiers, you know, maybe, um, you know, think about it, they've had 20, 30 years, 10, 20, 30 years, I don't know, in the industry, kind of with a specific set of inputs into their world. Mm. Um, and now, you know, their kids are telling them about climate change. They've seen climate change on the news. There's kind of all this, the IPCC reports coming out, um, you know, the regulatory, uh, uh, so the IPCC is the intergovernmental panel for climate change uh, correct me if i'm wrong i think uh that's, I, exactly, I, I lose... that's exactly what it is yes there we go <laughs> 10 points um and then you've got things like the regulators like the sec which is the securities and exchange commission in the us like they're all bringing these non traditionally non-financial factors into finance so on the one hand you've got like um this push towards it from the outside uh, or the push towards um you know climate from the outside uh, into finance but on the on the other hand you've got these new incentives within finance right where like um anybody in any job like is ultimately kind of you know there are economic incentives that are really important right like if if um like however much my employees love their jobs they say like you know if we had no money we said right there's no pay you wonder who's who's going to turn up tomorrow right i'm sure there are some very passionate people about what they do that they do that but like in finance right having the incentives to really engage with these kind of things is actually a massive driver as well so esg which is environment social and governance issues um are now kind of like i think it's something like by 2030 like one third of all assets under management in the world are going to be like esg related so it's like 40 trillion dollars in assets are going to be kind of related to these things so it's like this huge shift where not only is it good for the planet to change, but actually within finance, I think there are a lot more incentives for uh, the banks and the investors and the asset managers to actually bring in uh, environmentally related things. Now, there's a big question within that, which is um, how do you know what's actually good for the planet and how do you know what's wrapped up in this made up ESG? Well, that's, that's, know, that's my this. next question is how do you use your data in order for people to be able to make decisions? Yeah. Um, so we mentioned it in the pre-talk and greenwashing is something obviously that's uh, prevalent and is endemic if you have these two forces, right? If you have people that suddenly think, hang on, we can make a lot of money from talking more about stuff that's green, um, they're going to try and find, find ways to make money from it, right? So whether it's like green bonds, which kind of have pretty dubious uh, foundations sometimes, so like an oil and gas major or an energy company that kind of fracks and drill stuff out of the ground for their business can say like oh but we're taking this loan to uh you know plant some trees and then all of a sudden they get a much better rate on on the bonds that they're taking and there's like economic incentives but not necessarily like planetary incentives um so yeah there are real issues in that um uh, i think one of the ways that our data kind of um helps change that um, so, you know, we ultimately, our expertise and our background is in satellite geospatial data, right? And and a good proxy is, like, you think about geopolitical stuff. So, 
North Korea or Iran, you know, kind of, you know, they say, oh, we're going to demilitarize or denuclearize. And then you get these images in the news that say they're seen launching rockets from this site or they're seen to be firing up the nuclear plants again. Um, and satellite data and geospatial data can be used similarly in focusing on making sure that people are doing what they say they are in finance and in corporations, you know. So looking at um, what's actually happening on the ground. So, for example, with emissions. Um, carbon accounting is done today from a balance sheet. It's kind of a, a bastardized econometric kind of analysis. Um, and it's a very bad judge where you say, these are our scope one, these are our scope two, these are scope three emissions. But like, it's kind of based upon really top level, vague kind of numbers. With satellite data, you know, we've done a project with the European Space Agency uh, where we've been working in um, metals and commodities supply chains where you can monitor the atmospheric conditions over these mines and basically call BS and say, everybody's having these net zero commitments, but we can see with satellites, like are the emissions going up or are they going down or are they staying the same? So it's one example of how, you know, us using geospatial data, bringing it into what we call climate intelligence uh, to kind of help people get smart on what's really going on rather than what's making people money. Governments so, must hate you. Yeah. <laughs> the government companies like us, must hate you. Yeah. Um, well, well, interestingly, there's a lot of oil or, companies or maybe not. that are transitioning. And, is, there know, a lot, really... is there a lot of BS? And like, when, you know, did, I think in my imagination, everyone's, oh, everyone's going to be just very honest about what they're trying to do. And, but maybe not. Maybe, maybe I'm being naive. I mean, we're all hypocrites, right? Myself included. But Susie, yes, it? there is a lot of BS. <laughs> okay. tell, tell me about who's funding this work. I mean, imagine that you're looking at emissions from a particular area and you're determining whether or not people are living up to what they're claiming they're doing. Um, that company's not funding you to do that work because they don't want you to find out that they aren't doing it. So where, does, where is your client in this? Is it the government or is it, who is it who, who's, who's funding the work that you're doing on some of this? Yeah, so government and NGOs are interested in this type of work. Um, they tend to be um, you know, really important projects, but often there can be other incentives on these projects. You know, there can be a bit more bureaucracy. There's maybe less kind of economic returns and it can take a lot longer. And often you question the impacts, I guess, as well. Um, it's not me being really callous. Like I think some of these projects can be really important. But one of the most exciting areas for us kind of comes back to finance, right? Like if you can prove that there's alpha in like investing in green companies that are actually green or investing in companies that um, are like building resiliency into their you know factories in the case of climate risks, I actually think that's one of the most exciting custom sets that we have, you know? So there's the actual investors who want to find alpha saying like actually going green is of economic value rather than just like, you know, the greenwashing kind of pretending you are. Um, and then there's firms like, you know, financial data providers who maybe they are what they want to create. Like, you know, imagine proper validated green ratings where today, you know, companies are, you know, the AAA, AA, um, all the different ratings. Imagine if there was ways for us to really understand which companies are green, which companies are lowering their emissions, which can, which companies aren't. That's fascinating. I mean, could you imagine a sort of system like a bit like when you buy food and it's got red, yellow, green, depending on how healthy it is? Are, you, are we going to get to a point where governments and big companies are going to be, you could actually provide a rating for them and go, well, actually, you're, you're, Absolutely. you're BS or you're actually ticking boxes and it's, you, you know, you're worth investing in? Yeah, so actually, if you look at our dashboard, 
uh, we've got a few different products, right? A lot of our, a lot of the big customers like to have like API based like integrations, right? Which is effectively, they're like, no, we don't want to look at a new screen. We don't want to look at a new application. We want this data piped directly into our existing workflow. So APIs are very good for that, where, you know, you're abstracting away like these beautiful maps, this kind of satellite data into numbers on a spreadsheet that an analyst can actually use. Uh, but in the dashboarding product that we have, which, which some customers like, you literally have the red, the green and the yellow in terms of like looking at like Google Maps, imagine each one of these assets on a map. It's like, is this red for risk? Is it yellow or is it green? And there's a lot of methodology that goes into those numbers and unpacks it. But it's super cool. And you can literally do that today. You can look at the assets of a company. You can look at, you know, cities from across the world, like assets in the center of them and be like, where are we most at risk? Where are most of these emissions coming from? Um, what are these things that we should think about as we're doing strategic planning or, you know, uh, analysis of where we should build our next factory or what type of company is investable or not. It is super cool. We're at the start yeah. of this change, but like uh, uh, we're, we're at the start of what I call the climate economy, right? Where like mm. everything will have climate as just a thing within it. But we're kind of in, coming back to the greenwashing thing, we're in like the pets.com stage of the climate economy, right? There's like, there's <laughs> well, all these made up companies launching this stuff and you're never sure what's real and what's not. Do we get, are we going to, the trouble is we do get a bit distracted when COP was happening in Glasgow last year. We were all talking about it and it was top of the news agenda and, you know, Greta was all over the news and all this stuff was all over and we were all very excited and then stuff happens, life happens, wars happen, Ukraine happens, Brexit. And and is there a danger of, of we just get, we just can't keep it at the top of the agenda long enough for, or is it all just happening underneath the surface? And Here's the thing, I'll, I'll do a really quick answer, Frederick, and then, <laughs> and then we can get your take. But like, COP, COP is a, was a big deal in terms of the papers, right? But like, when I, I wasn't allowed in the, in, in the blue zone, in the VIP zone. You know, I, was, I was slumming it in the meetings around Glasgow, uh, speaking at a few other events, right? But um, there was this big hubris and there was lots of celebs there. And then lots of people were kind of deeply unhappy with the outcomes. A lot of the things that move us forward are really nerdy, right? Like the SEC regulations that I talked about earlier, right? They're coming in in 2024 and every single company in the US will have to disclose their climate related emissions and stuff and like there are and in in the eu and in the uk there's similar things happening i guess the point is like a lot of the time it's the things that don't make the big headlines that are really quite regulatory and boring but kind of become both market makers for startups but also like massive drivers of change even more so than maybe i don't know leo dicaprio turning up at cop and uh, as much as we all love leo i wonder how much um of a benefit all these celebs kind of turning up for photo shoot does in driving us forward well, I suppose, I mean, the, it peaks the public interest, I suppose. Federica's nodding there. Yeah. I'm quite optimist. I mean, I feel that, uh, you know, the IPCC keeps telling us, uh, uh, but it also is trying to reach individuals, trying to reach the, the global quite deeply. We see it every day. Uh, we have really a few years left and to make an impact, and the message is coming through. So I'm quite optimistic. optimistic. Um, there is uh, a lot of confusion, a lot of greenwashing. I agree uh, with Josh. Um, uh, and Josh, next year I give you the access to the cool zone, to the blue zone. So now I'll be even you. Were you in the blue zone? <laughs> I mean, in the old zones. Uh, I'm probably She's good or bad. Right? <laughs> <laughs> nice. Access but, all zones. Yeah. I have, I have another question for you, Federico, actually, about. about um, 
how you see the role of collaboration in supporting our net zero ambitions. Yeah, um, after this, I'm interested to talk even to Josh to see if actually we can say collaboration. There is a lot of uh, uh, greenwash in the rainforest part, etc. And sometimes we call out, but we want, uh, I mean, independently verify and call it out. It's going to add much strength. Uh, so that's one partnership. I would definitely love to look deeper into that. Um, uh, CFN is all about partnership because we feel that's the only way really we can move issues forward. Uh, and for example, when we start Red Plus uh, under the UNFCC, uh, we needed to build uh, um, some comfort, uh, reduce the risks uh, and, and, and see there was options. So we say uh, to the World Bank, hey, everybody trusts you, World Bank. Uh, would you like to create um, a little fora for us where uh, unofficially developed and developing countries can come together and discuss those issues? And so we that became the FCPF, basically the Carbon Forest Facility of the World Bank. But that was the partnership of the CFRN and the World Bank uh, demystifying uh, and allow a space where safely everybody could exchange uh, uh, you know, views and build trust and put some money uh, and then, you know, move forward into the UNFCC. The other partnership that we're really working now is again with the banks and with companies uh, where we need to educate them that there is this Red Plus uh, a scale, national level, uh, where they have national satellites that fly over the countries uh, and ground through it in and uh, developing countries report the reduction and those are real and verified. And so if they wanna uh, be, they have all these carbon neutrality, carbon positive pledges, buy credits for whatever you cannot reduce because the internal reduction is still priority, but whatever you cannot reduce, buy direct from the rainforest countries that they're doing this reduction area. So we're working right now with the BNP Paribas, we're working with NatWest uh, to create those partnership. And last but not least, we're working on a three-point also Joshua Shane with um, EY, uh, the global auditing partners, uh, to see you know, all those companies that are doing uh, you know, those pledges and carbon neutrality. What is the accounting, the carbon accounting? What is real, scope one, scope two, scope three? The, what, what is included? not include and maybe we should create a new one because actually this one scope one two and three were created you know by a non-profit that were useful for the time but now we're moving forward and we should probably have the big force you know looking into that uh, and standardize uh, in a way that is going to be linked with the Paris Agreement and so those are the partnerships that uh, we're looking for behind also a partnership with uh, GEO uh, to get satellite data with IMPE uh, uh, they all, uh, you know, need to be support with uh, financial incentives, but that's where we are now. One, um, one follow up on that as well, right, is when you talk about the audit, coming back to what we were saying earlier about how some of the nerdy regulatory changes are, you know, big drivers. One of the most important things in this US announcement that was made by Gary Gensler last week was the audit part. Right. They said, oh, look, we have to do all these disclosures. Uh, you know, that, that's really happened. But saying that they have to be audited is like a really mm. small but serious additional layer where you get away from greenwashing, you get more towards this validation. And like, hopefully for companies like ours, right, where it's like there is more need for validation um, in the data, because obviously auditors will mm. be wanting to have better stuff to measure. 
That's really interesting. We're running out of time, but I just want to ask you both a, a sort of final thoughts. We've talked a lot about COP26. I want to talk about um, COP36. Ten years from now, what are we going to be, what, what's going to have happened? What are we going to be discussing? And what, what, what changes would you be most sort of proud to have made in the next, in the next decade? Well, COP thirty six, COP thirty six will be held on Mars, right? So, we'll, we'll I think so. With e- well, Elon Musk, we'll all be on Starship, and we'll be. I'm of the opinion in, in... we are one planet, uh, and we need to preserve it. Uh, I hope the near from now. Really, my dream is that we had two global stock take, um, so everybody was able to report that actually we have achieved. Uh, the reductions of the uh, 43% that the APCC is requiring uh, and that uh, we're focusing at that point uh, on removals. And so increasing, increasing with the forest, increasing with everything else, uh, we can also technology uh, because we have achieved our goal. Uh, If not, it's going to be a really bleak environment that we're living to future generations uh, and I think we cannot afford to do that. So I see 10 years from now uh, companies they're gonna participate actively uh, to uh, this fora, they're gonna be directly buying credits uh, uh, from rainforest countries uh, um, and there's gonna be you know direct access and um, and we're gonna have a more really sustainable uh, sustainable environment. Great. All right. A good vision there. I look forward to talking to you again in 10 years time and finding out if those things came true. Good stuff. I'm making notes. I'll be there. Just to... <laughs> there's, there's one there's one thing, though, with that, right? There's the scary future that you were saying could happen. Uh, so for me in 10 years, it's like cyberpunk is obviously a genre that we all know about, right? Like Blade Runner or like, you know, this kind of dystopian views of the future. I encourage anybody listening to go out and see Solarpunk, which is a version of the future where... Uh, you know, you have verdant green pastures coupled with technology and, you know, we live in harmony with nature in this kind of eco-utopian future. So that's what I'm imagining will be there for COP36. Uh, and it's also just super beautiful and inspiring kind of uh, community of artists and, and writers. It, it's nice. It's But you wouldn't have sort of Tina Turner kind of in sort of leather and a kind of Thunderdome with with sort of motorci- motorcycles and... The full Mad Max dystopia, which is exciting. E-cycles, yeah, that would work. That would work. Flying flying E-cycles. Obviously, we still need Tina Turner there. um, (laughs) Exactly. A different modality. Sorry, Susie, this is a cultural reference too far. She's just like, what the hell are you talking I'm about? I'm lost, but that's okay. It was a Mad Max. It was a Mad Max. It was a Mad Max future dystopian reference. Half of us are lost, but that's okay. Um, But just... But the sort of ten years in term, in term, just in terms of finance, what 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 what's going to create your solar punk um, utopia? I think a layer of validation, so we know what we are investing in, um, and then the right integrations into the right areas of the economy to make it happen. You know, it comes back to that collaboration thing, right? It's like we need collaboration, but we also need to have the data and the climate intelligence and the insights, um, you know, to do those things. So for us, you know, our, our aim at SUST is to be that foundational climate data layer. But then there's all these new amazing products, applications, services, processes, maybe stuff that we don't even know about, right? Like 
there could be these new kind of you know finance nerds in a garage saying how well, if you add this this and this you can create this new derivative which is validated and people can buy into that and then everybody all of a sudden in society says we want to invest into this etf or this index instead of all of the you know the ones full of exxon mobile and uh, uh shell and all of these uh, i'm not mentioning any companies there are other oil and gas companies available <laughs> but um like yeah just there i think these secondary like externalities and these derivatives from having better data, like the missions that uh, you know us and, and Federica both have, like I think that's the really exciting thing if we look forward into the future. Okay, that's it for this episode. Hope you enjoyed uh, the discussion as much as we did. Thank you very, very much to Federica and to Josh for taking part. Thank you for your time. Thank you, most of all, for listening. And we very much look forward to your company next time. Don't forget to get in touch with Luca Badello or Andy Bennett at KTN if you'd like to chat or collaborate with them. And the links to the publication that go alongside this podcast, Net Zero and the Power of Place, are in the podcast description. See you next time. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Innovate UK KTN. Connecting for positive change.